0: interrupt our normally scheduled podcast to share with those who are interested, really incredible talk that I just got to be part of with one of my most favorite humans in the world, Ruhi Kovell, who's a fabulous speaker, an author, and teacher. And we were asked by the Maltz Museum to do a presentation called My Story, which is sharing women's stories and we chose to do ours about my memoir seconds and inches and we talked about a topic which i think is really prevalent and makes sense for this audience which is vulnerability and self-hate self-love and god and connection and finding our way so if you are interested in checking it out i think it's worth a listen it made me have a lot of feelings and a lot of thinking, and I'm still letting it marinate. So I hope you enjoy. Thanks. Grandfather is TV in the background, or is that just
1: me? Okay. I do, it's like a football game.
0: It feels like my papa's here and he just got the TV on really loud in the background. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Can we just acknowledge that you're not just a mother, you're a mother of seven. So I think about this often with my three boys and I'm like, Rufy has my set of kids plus another of my set of kids plus another kid. That's well, a lot some, of kids.
1: Some of my kids are like three kids apiece, So I kind of have like 10 to 15 kids. It depends on the day. I beat you because my youngest one is 14 kids. <laughs> okay. So it was my honor to meet Carly years ago, I think through our mutual friend Allison. Is that how we met? Yeah, she's
0: on um, Ag- at Agnon actually, 14 years ago when my little my oldest was
1: at Agnon. Yeah. And you came wow. to speak to us. That's right. Hard to believe it was such a long time ago. And I mean, from the beginning, I just felt like there was a spark in your soul that my soul recognized. And I just somehow got this feeling that our souls were destined to intersect somehow in this world. And here we are years and years later uh, with each of us having experienced so many things. And it's such an honor to be talking to you today. Thank you so much. And Rookie,
0: if you don't know her, it is... A gift that you get to know her right now because she is a speaker and when she speaks you for me I can hear the message of God that I'm supposed to hear regardless of the religion that you practice and she is able to cut through all the outside stuff and really get me into a place where I have to listen to my soul and I I think that's what we've always been drawn to about each other Um, Regardless of how we look differently on the outside, on the inside, I think we're the exact same soul fabric. So I'm so excited to do this with you.
1: Thank you. I completely agree. And that was the feeling I got when I read your book. Um, So why don't we jump in and can you start with reading us something from your book to open our talk today? Yes,
0: I'm going to just give you a teeny bit of background um, this part of my book, I am—I was supposed to go to Israel by myself at age 22, and I was sober a couple of years. Um, it was a rough time in my life, and I got to a place where I was like, "I'm going to take care of myself and do this on my own." And at the exact same time, Sabar bombings started happening in Tel Aviv. All the bombings started happening, and I had tickets, and I had nowhere to stay. I had no one I knew I was gonna stay with there and I had no itinerary, no internet. There was just like voters, like hungry planet guide. And my father was constantly cutting out articles from the plane dealer telling me about how dangerous it was there and I shouldn't go. And I was like, I've got God in a backpack, I'm good. And on that trip, what I realized because I did not end up staying in Israel because it was so dangerous was that I was screwed because I was by myself with that loop in my head that doesn't shut up about, oh, I'm not good enough, huh? I'm not pretty enough, huh? I'm not skinny enough, huh? I'm not never gonna get whatever, and it was exhausting. So this part is me in Nice, France in a hotel room um, right after I finally got there after days of traveling. I went into the bathroom and changed my clothes and put on my sandals. After I brushed my teeth, I felt like a new human. When I headed towards my new gate, I saw the longest line I've ever seen. It was the customs line to get out of the country. Hundreds of young people were exiting myself among them. I needed to find somewhere to go. I'd only packed clothing for hot weather. I asked a wayward teenager where I could go on a train from Frankfurt that was warm. And she said, go to Nice." I decided her words were a divine directive. And so several hours later, I found myself in a hotel in France having the best shower of my life. From there, I went to a beach where women lounged topless and children were as naked and free as I finally felt. The enthusiasm with which I removed my clothes was unrepeatable. Being alone for so many days with absolutely no one else to speak to brought clarity. I realized that the cutting words and the constant self-judgment were really just a tape on a loop the loop brought me back to the same bullshit I would say to myself throughout my adolescence, into wayward adulthood, and straight to my would-be grave. There, topless on a beach in Nice, I had this moment, a Wizard of Oz moment, where I looked behind the curtain in my psyche only to find a tape recorder playing my lame-ass loop of self-rejection. It was a revelation in the beginning of the journey on the road to who I am today. That first night in Nice, showered and well-fed on poulet fermier, I sat in front of the long mirror in my hotel room and had the best conversation with myself of my life. That night I made amends to the nine-year-old Carly who wanted to die and felt so alone. I talked to the teenage Carly who never thought she was enough. I apologized for starving myself. I apologized for all the mean things I said to myself. I cried and laughed out loud and I promised the Carly that was becoming, I will be your best friend. I will never leave you and I will have your back. I will be what you have always needed, I promise. And I would need myself on that journey because traveling solo in a foreign country is lonely and frightening. I became completely aware after listening to my own mind on a loop that insanity and depression are a default state for me and I could deliberately choose something else. I discovered through writing in my journal that I actually do enjoy connecting with other humans and I made a decision to be more open and trusting with my heart. And I realized that even if I do get hurt, the guiding voice of God will always be there for me. I wrote, I am becoming my own best friend. I am becoming beautiful and lovable. I am becoming an extension of every man and woman who held the light in front of me to show me the way out of the cold darkness. This is living. I have already died. Now today, this moment, this drop I savor, I shall live. I'm learning to fly. By the time I flew back to the States, I felt changed. I even looked different. I caught a glimpse of my reflection in the tiny screen on the seat in front of me and I actually liked what I saw. That voice inside was right. I was not returning home from that trip, the same person. The Carly that arrived there a week prior was gone. Like so many, I needed to go away in order to come back to myself. I needed to face what I had been running from all those years. I found my best friend. I met the one person who will always have my back. I became the one who will always step up for me when I needed it. I only had to look in the mirror.
1: Wow, (laughs) I have the chills right now. I, I think about that Carly who was in her mid twenties and I think that she had more wisdom than many people have in their whole lives. Um, but my question for you is, here we are, decades later, what prompted you to write this book now?
0: Um, thank you for that compliment. So you asked me the other day that, you know, when I wanted to, when I wanted to write the book and what, where it all came from, and I go back to age nine. At age nine, I was growing up in an alcoholic home. I was told I needed to keep my secrets um, and not tell anybody. I knew that if I was behaved really well on the outside, that no one could bother me about what was going on. And I knew that if somebody knew what was going on in, in the inside of me, that they wouldn't believe it. And I also knew that at my age, that no one would believe me. Um, is there any way we can mute whoever's talking? Cause I have such a bad ADD and I can't, I keep hearing them. Anyone, anyone in, out there in the world of technology? If not, I'll keep going. We're both being muted and we're being turned on. Okay, I think we're good, okay. so. I've known that this was my story and I needed to carry it, but I didn't know how to. And then, as you know, I live my life and it, all this stuff happens. And then fast forward, I'm sitting in your congregation. I'm Yom Kippur. And I hear a rabbi speaking. And he says, he's basically talking to the congregation about how we make, this is the time of year to like, instead of making like a resolution, but like a year to make Like a challenge to ourselves and he talked about this challenge about writing a thank you every single day and i wanted to do it and i decided i was going to do a post every day on social media of a thank you of someone in my life that made it brighter and in the beginning it was like my professor or you or somebody in my life that i loved my mom you know and then my son my middle son we live on a really cute street lots of kids and one of them um made fun of him he went out he finally got the courage to go out on the street to and he never does and he made fun of him because he has really thick glasses and he's legally blind. When you say that out loud, it sounds ridiculous. Like, how could someone make fun of someone for that? But you and I both know that they do. He came inside crying. I had not written my thank you that day. We had a really intense talk with him and my other kids. And we talked about the three different kinds of people that there are in the world. The kind of person that makes fun of people, the kind of person that gets made fun of, and the kind of person that stands up for the people that are getting made fun of. Um, and I told them that I've been all of them, and I prefer being the one that stands up for the person that gets made fun of. And that day, I wrote my thank you about that. And that post got more likes and more comments than anyone had ever done. And people were like, "Keep writing ones like this." So fast forward a year, my year's up, and it was really transformational. If you do anything for a year, every day, it's pretty cool. And they're like, "You can't stop writing." So another year came, and I said, oh, "I'm going to do a." something every single day that I'm going to find a gift or a lesson is something hard because there's a woman named Roe Eugene who died sober, who taught me this idea. And a couple months in, I get a message from an amazing woman named Elle, who I knew many, many years ago, who has an awesome independent publishing company. And she's like, I want you to turn this into a book.
1: And then fast forward, it became this. I actually remember reading your post on Facebook and writing to you, you must turn this into a book. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's so interesting because when people think of gratitude, they usually think of the people who have done good things for them. And you turned that around and you said, no, I'm grateful for the tough lessons that I've gotten because those are the lessons that make me who I am. Yeah. I even wrote one
0: to a uh, a teacher that was horribly mean to me and made fun of me. And I got a lot of private messages about that one because it is like, if we don't find gifts and lessons in the hard ones, then we're just gonna become weighed down by them. But if we use them to pull ourselves up and realize what we've learned, I mean, that's what's gonna lead us into what we're talking
1: about today. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think also to just pull God into this conversation, which is where we're headed, um, not everybody has that access to recognize that Um, You know, there's God hiding behind everything and how, if you can find God in the shadows, then you're going to be okay, no matter what happens to you. Um, And that leads me to my next question for you, which is that, you know, during your life, you know, even when you were young, you said, No, I have God in a backpack. You've had so many different access points in your relationship with God. So, you're obviously Jewish. You're a daughter of hol- a granddaughter of Holocaust survivors. You are a child of addicts. You are yourself a recovering addict, recovered, recovering. I'm not sure what the term is. And all of those have been opportunities to discover your relationship with God. So, how would you say that your relationship? With God has changed over the years and how has that change been shaped?
0: Um, I love that you were able to pull this out of the book. Um, I love that you were like how could you not see that this is like the main part of the book. Um, I want to say this in the question that Ruhi sent me about this concept, she used the words access point. And I'm a word person, so I looked up the word access, even though I know what it means, I wanted to see what the definition is. And access is a means of approaching or entering a place. And I love the concept about, you know, the dark parts, the broken parts are where the light gets in. And for me, there's a woman named Vanessa, who I found along my path early on when I got sober, and she, she used to talk about this concept when I first got sober. I heard her talking about how God opens these windows and that they are these brief moments of time where we are open enough to accept something that's coming in. For me, it's always been God bringing me something. And we need to take them and take advantage of them. They're not like just one. You don't just get one and then you're done. Like, oh, sorry, you didn't like help take my help. And for me, it's been over and over. So when you asked me this question, I I wrote down what they were. And it's all about this concept that I was taught in the rooms is called the gift of desperation. And I didn't know, I've been telling this story for 20 years about the gift of desperation, where you're tired enough and out of plans and you're just desperate enough. You're like, you're willing to do whatever it takes. And that's actually considered a gift by people who know better, who are already on the other side. And so I didn't know that gift of desperation stood for God. So for 20 years, I've been saying gift of desperation. I didn't know that that, those letters stand for God. And for me, that's my COVID case. (laughs) excuse me. For me, the gift of desperation has always been in the desperate times I've come closest to God. When I look back, when you ask me this question, I look back, what are the times where I've let God in? It's only been when I'm struggling. And that is telling to me. So I wrote down that growing up, I did not, we were not a God house. We did not even talk about God until my parents got sober. I knew about God. I went to temple. I have Holocaust survivor family members. We prayed, we had Shabbos. I went to constant Hebrew school and Sunday school. Never in that school, which is different from your school, did anyone tell me that God could be somebody that I could count on or go to. And so by the time I- I They always say like, yeah, I always, I say Jews don't talk about God in polite company. Right. And so by the time I was nine, my concept of God was God abandoned me. Like, if you knew what my life was like and you saw what was going on, then where's God, right? And I think a lot of us can relate to that with so much sadness and tragedy that's everywhere. And that that is something I think that makes us separate from God because that concept is so scary. Well, where's God, right? I did not invite God or have access to God again until I was 19 so 10 years later I knew about God my mother and father got sober my mom told me I could ask God for help because they got sober and that's when they started talking about God and I would pray at night sometimes and ask God for help but it was mostly like very distant nothing connected and I also got to a place where I think many people who are in addiction get to where I just didn't feel like I was good enough to even be accepted by God because of the way I was living. To deserve God, maybe. Exactly. So the only time I ever asked God for help was when I was in a lot of trouble, and then I had no, nothing else. So the, the next time I felt God accessing, getting in and breaking through, was when I was laying on the bathroom floor in Athens, Ohio on January 26, 1999, 22 years ago, after I tried taking 90 pills to kill myself. And that was when I heard a voice very, very clearly say, Carly, you're going to die. You need to get up and call for help. And it was a voice almost as if you were talking to someone that was standing on the edge of a bridge and you don't want to scare them. You don't want to scream at them, but it's insistent. You're not wasting your time about anything else. And that I know is God. And that's the same voice that is inside of me today that guides me. Um, So that's the first time. And then when I got sober, the men and women in the room said to me, you need to get a relationship with God. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. And they said, well, what do you want God to be? And I said, I need courage because I don't know how to do anything without alcohol or drugs. I'm terrified of living in this world. And so my first concept sober of God was just a concept of courage. And so I would say, Please give me courage and God did. I showed up and did that. So it's a partnership. I do the work and God gives me the courage. And that's how we started.
1: Um, so interesting because um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory always talks about Judaism as being a covenant, as being a covenantal relationship, he uses that word all the time in his writings and a covenant is exactly what you just said it's a partnership. And I think a lot of times when we think of the punitive God or the punishing God or the God who I'm scared of or the God who abandoned me. It's like, well, I just do 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 for God and then God gets to decide if I'm good enough but. I think what you're describing now, which is, I think, far closer to the authentic Jewish definition of God is in a relationship. And relationship means that it's mutual. And it means that I give to this relationship and God gives to this relationship. And we are in a mutually supportive relationship. And for some reason, it's so hard for Jewish people to access that. Well, Ruki, I've never heard people talk about it like you do. I, I mean, I'm not just saying this
0: until I found you. I never heard a Jew talk about it like that. And so when you start talking about that, and I love that we're covenant because when I work with women in the rooms, I talk about this concept, which is in, in one of our steps, which is called step three, where we do, we make a contract with our higher power with God. And I picture, I don't know why I picture, I picture a Costco table, like one of those long ones that you throw up, right? And I picture I'm on one end and God's on the other. I have no idea what God looks like, but we're just there together. And God's contract is like this. I'm going to give you what you need. And you're going to stay close to me and do my work well. So I have to do these two things. I have to stay close and do whatever's in front of me what, that I think is what God wants me to do. And God's going to be what I need. And that's very different than what I want. And, that, and it, I am, I love words and so do you. And there's a difference in identifying that we are going to get what we need. And so I'm sure you can do it as well, I have to look back on my life and there's never been a time since I made that contract that I haven't been given what I needed.
1: I've not been given what I wanted. Yeah, and I mean, I think sometimes we don't even know what we need. Um, and for me, certainly that's part of what it means to have a higher power is the trust that my higher power knows what I need better than I know what I need. And yeah. that that's very comforting in the sense, not comforting in the sense that I got everything on my wish list, um, but comforting in the sense that God God has a plan for me, a master plan for me. And I, I, I know we're touching on some sensitive territory now, which is what I want to do. I want to step on your toes because um, when I talked about access points, one of the things that I neglected to mention in your access points with God is being your, you know, I mentioned being a granddaughter of Holocaust survivors, being in recovery, um, but I didn't mention being the mother of a sick child as an access point to God. And w- would you speak to that for a few minutes? Yeah. Um, so
0: I've got this kid who in my book is named Levi. And he is my karma baby. He is the biggest teacher in my entire life he challenges me more than anyone on earth like he's not one of those kids that's sick that's like so perfect and you're like oh my god you're such a sweetheart like he's not like he's a glitter storm he is like every parenting help I need from you is about him like he is the most challenging human I've ever met he's my 14 children and I had three boys back to back boom 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 Up until this point, my relationship with God was like this. And I wanted to be very clear. If this is your concept of God, I am not making fun of it. I'm not knocking it. It worked for me for 11 years until it didn't, until that access point had to be opened up again. So my concept of God up until this point of my youngest son's medical stuff was that every single thing happens for a reason. That if I make a light or I don't make a light or I make a parking spot or I don't get On a plane, it's because God has a plan and it was like Disney World and it was comforting. And then once in a while, like somebody would mention the Holocaust or slavery or people starving, and I would get really flustered because it didn't make sense with my concept. And then my uncle Evan died of brain cancer and that really pissed me off. And I was like, I don't understand how this is perfect. And then, you know, the door, my house, the door knocked on, right? That's what happens. We get. Our door gets knocked on, or you get hit in the face, or whatever it is, it gives me chills just talking about it. And this has been my greatest gift of my entire life. And I'll tell you this because the people in my life today, because of being a mother of a child that almost died and that could potentially not survive because of his medical stuff, has given me the people in my life that are the most inspirational and strong than anyone I've ever met. So, I got this kid and something's wrong with his head. And it turns out that the blood flow from his brain to his heart and back again is born completely closed off. And the fastest way I can explain it to you is that no one's ever been born with this in the entire world that we know of. And the reason why we know this is because his head is like poofy, like he's bald. He's got these veins that are real poofy in the back that kind of look like a Medusa in the back. And so through like a five week period of time, I was mostly responsible, um, along with people that were helping me along the way to find an answer for what we were supposed to do to save his life. And we were told two differing opinions by medical people, the best people in the entire universe when it comes to pediatric neurology. One set of opinions said, if you don't intervene and try to open up the flow in the back of his head, he will die of venous hypertension, which I quickly found out means the basically the blood in your brain gets ba- backed up and it your kid can't survive. He'll have a stroke and he'll die. Young, like really, like soon. Like, like it was like a time clock. Um, the other group said, if you intervene, he will die on the table. And... It's up to you, mom and dad, what do you guys want to do? Um, We within, and I knew this because I had God that I, even what was happening with me, I said to myself, there could not be a better person for this to happen to because nobody will mess with my kid and I will get whatever I need to get to make it happen and within One evening from us finding out all this information, I got 13 of the best pediatric neurosurgeons in the world to respond to my email. And like, I always get this wrong. Is Michelangelo the artist or is Michelangelo the artist, right? Yes. (laughs) David is what he made, right? There's a story that was told to me a long time ago that stuck with me that Michelangelo when he was asked how he created the David. He said he did not create the David. He said he just removed whatever was not David. And I love that concept because I'm a visual person. And what happened was every single medical center that said they could help us dropped out one after another, after another, when they saw his scans, when they talked to our doctors and all that was left was Boston. And to give you more chills, literally to the date tomorrow, 11 years ago, he was supposed to have his first brain surgery. And so we went there a couple of days ago, 11 years ago, and we ended up finding out that um, through another procedure that that they did, that they put him to sleep, that the system he created was sufficient. It was not ideal, um, but he made his own system and that we needed to do a certain number of procedures to keep him alive as a human, but that they were not gonna touch his head because it could be deadly. that access point happened something with me in bathroom floors um, after i'm in that horrible little room where they talk to you about like scary things the doctor does i went in the bathroom floor so for the last five weeks while we're waiting my relationship with god dramatically changed and it went from thy will be done thy will be done thy will be done to just give me whatever i need to get through this moment because i knew that if i lost my son which is still on the table today that I needed to have a relationship with God to get me through whatever I was going to to go through as a mother. And I couldn't believe anymore that it was perfect in God's world. And this is just my belief. I couldn't believe anymore that God wanted to take my son from me in this way. And so my new concept was not going to happen yet. But at that moment, all it was, was get me through right now. I trust you. I love you. Give me what I need to get through it. And then after we got that news, I went in the bathroom. I did not cry. I went in the bathroom. I hit the floor of one, of one of those family bathrooms, like handicapped ones. And I hit the floor. I started bawling and apologizing to God because I doubted God the whole time. And that whole idea, like, you don't really know how what your faith is until, you know, the shit, you know. So I felt embarrassed as a believer because I didn't believe in God. Like, I believed in God. I didn't believe that God had me. During that entire time. And that makes me feel sad. And like you, with any of your children, if they came to you with this kind of thing, you would just love them more. That's my concept of God. God wasn't like, I can't believe that, Carly. Like God was just like, I love you more. And so if you're okay fact, with that. I would,
1: I would just love that authenticity, the fact that the fact that my child is even thinking about our relationship and caring about our relationship. And struggling with our relationship, that's far better than abandoning, or anything is better than abandonment.
0: Yeah. So I want to read this part to you, um, to all of you, because it really exemplifies what we just talked about. So it's called Get in the Barrel. While I waited for the news from the teams at Johns Hopkins, I had a sense that I wasn't being told the whole story about Levi. It seemed to me that doctors and my family and my friends are trying to protect me from some terrible truth. I had done it. I had withheld important information that might be challenging for someone to hear because I thought I'd spare them some pain. I had done it to the people I love. One of my close friends told me a parable about faith. There's a stunt performer standing at the edge of a cliff with a barrel and a high wire stretched across an abyss. The performer is surrounded by a crowd of onlookers. He challenges the crowd and points to a man. Excuse me, sir, you see this barrel? The man nods. Do you think if I get in this barrel and try to make it across the wire, I could? The man looks at the others around him, smiles, and says, Yeah, I guess I believe it. The performer says, So you believe I can do it? You believe if I get in this barrel, I can make it across this wire without falling? The man shrugs and laughs and says, Yeah, I believe you can do it. The performer gets in the barrel and it and is given a great big push by his assistant. Across the wire and back, he goes. When he comes back, he walks up to the same man and bows. He then says, you believed I could do it, but do you have faith that it can be done? The man says, yeah, I have faith that can be done. The performer pushes the man towards the edge of the cliff and says, if you have faith, then get in the barrel. The difference between belief and faith only becomes clear when you have to get in the barrel. The one thing that I was certain about since getting sober was my belief in God. After years of sobriety, searching and trudging through all that blocked me from a true relationship with God, I had found my own conception of God. We were best friends. I knew I could count on God for anything, but I had a Disneyland kind of God. But the God I used to believe in, everything that happened in my life happened for a reason. It was blind, blind belief, untested by faith, and I loved it. I'm sure it bothered the people around me who might not have been as open to the will of God as I was. But I went forward with my beliefs and apologized to no one. It was almost foolproof. Almost. Events like the Holocaust and slavery stood in the way of making this belief foolproof, but I worked around it by attributing such atrocities to the free will of humans. The way I understood it was that God gave us free will, and God could not stop a person from using their own will. I didn't like it, but it wasn't God's fault. Then a few life events knocked me off my perch of certainty. When a good friend of mine was looking at a gun at his buddy's house and accidentally shot himself in the head, dead at 29, that was a kick to the spiritual stomach. Then my dad's younger brother, beloved Uncle Evan, was diagnosed with a horrific form of brain cancer and died in agonizing pain, leaving two kids and a lot of questions. I was pissed off. What I came up with was that horrible events happen in this world and I might not ever understand them, but I do need to believe that God knows what he's doing. And that was that. But then the universe asked me to get in the barrel.
1: Sorry. So, um, I mean, as a mother, as a fellow mother, I can't even imagine what you faced in those moments with your son. Um, I have been through other serious challenges in my life. And as a person who did grow up talking about God all the time in my home, in my school, with my friends, it was like trendy to talk about God with like my teenage friends. Um, and I have thought about these things too. Like, why did God make my father die when he was 30 and I was six? Why did God make my sons suffer with various challenges? Why, 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 why? And to my view, and I'm not arguing with your relationship with God, that is certainly not my place. I'm simply sharing my perspective, which is that I am comfortable with not understanding God because God is so much bigger than me. And and that's a good thing. The universe is way too complex for simplicities. And so I do believe that God knows what he's doing, that there is a master plan that, you know, and that there there is also evil in this world. And and I couldn't even begin to articulate all of that in the limited amount of time we have here. Um, But I don't think that, I don't think it's anybody's place to tell anybody else how to believe in God. I can teach you what traditional Judaism has to say. I can inspire you with stories of people who have maintained their faith through horrible atrocities. I can share my personal experiences, but ultimately every human being has to struggle with their own answers to these questions. And to really just, and like you're saying, like every single one of us is going to have, you know, author and journalist, David Brooks talks about this in his book, The Second Mountain, Mm -hmm. that we have these first mountains that we scale. And it's like, oh, well, what am I gonna be when I grow up? And who do I wanna marry? And I wanna build a family. And that's the first mountain. And then life will send you really, really tough stuff as, as you mentioned. And then, and then what's your second mountain? Your second mountain is not so much about accomplishing things or checking things off your list, but about figuring out what moral contribution can you make to the universe based on what you have learned from the challenges God has given you. And that's a far more significant accomplishment. And nobody can GPS you on that journey, right? So... My next question for you then is... Before
0: you get there, I want to yeah. respond to that. So like I said before, I believe that these moments and these challenges are actually gifts. And um, it's also something that me and you disagree upon. And I love this, that we are a lot of respect each other about that. I remember being at one of the JFX holidays and there was a pamphlet. I remember sitting outside getting ready to listen to one of your awesome talks. And on it was a prayer. And one of the things that it said, I remember was it asked God to not give me any challenges this year. I remember going up to you. you I this? totally remember this conversation. I remember where we were standing. I do too. And I was like, really, I don't agree with this, which is why I love you because you allow me to not agree. And like you respectfully like discuss it with me. And I was actually discussing this with none other than Ari Schoenbrunn, who was on the 78th floor when the tower hit and he was trapped and survived. And I was talking to him about this exact concept the other day that I don't want to ask God to not give me challenges. It's not like I'm like a challenge seeker, but I know, I mean, from writing this book to discussing this with you, to discussing this many times about this concept, I know that even though there's suffering and pain and I don't want it for anybody, that that is where the growth comes. That is where I get closer to God. That's where I get closer to uh, the... My David comes out, right? more of who I really am comes out. And right now in New York City is one of my closest friends waiting for her son to have a surgery that's unimaginable to me. And he's 13 years old and he's one of my son's best friends. And I know that what they're going through is pure dark hell. But I also know that she's going to find, and she already has found, there's so many gifts that come from it. And you know, I think I've spoken to you about this before, but there's a man named Christopher Jones who changed my life. He's the one who wrote Mitchell's Journey. Do you remember this part of the book?
1: Yeah, so
0: his, yeah, and I remember you
1: sending me an email at one point about him and you sent me a link to a video and I watched the whole thing crying my eyes out. It was so beautiful. Yeah, and he's just, um,
0: so God used an access point of my desperation and darkness. So after we got home from Boston with our son alive, with this new scary medical condition to be mindful of for the rest of his life, he then decided the universe, God, whatever was like, okay, that's not enough. We'd like to give your son fevers over 107, not 100.7, 107.6. So then I was on another journey and I was really stuck for the first time ever in my sobriety feeling bad for myself like I'd never gotten to that place and I'd been at ER after ER after ER with a burning baby crying no one knowing what to do people not believing me and I remember feeling really stuck and yucky and I found on Facebook this post and it was from Christopher Jones who wrote Mitchell's Journey who looked the day I read the post was the day his son passed away. That day, it was the first time I read his post and and his son died um, of Duchenne's muscular dystrophy which is a death sentence. And I went all the way back from the beginning of his Facebook post of Mitchell's journey and read from age three all the way until age 10. And he's a fantastic writer and an unapologetic photographer and He just shared his grief in a way that gave me permission to be human, that reminded me of my gifts and my perspective. And then the next time I was at the hospital with my son, burning up on my chest with ER people running around, I thought to myself, Christopher and Natalie, his wife, would do anything on earth to be where I am right now. And it completely changed the way I parent. And then He invited me after I sent him an email, which is really important that I want to talk to you about, because I think it's really important that we tell people when they, when they matter. I sent him an email telling him what it meant to me. He has a quarter of a million followers. I never thought he would ever read my email, let alone ever respond to me. Seven months later, he sends me an email saying how much my words touched him. Because if you don't, here's the thing, if you have an experience that's positive from somebody else's something and you don't tell them, it dies.
1: But if you you're not it- you're not going to believe me. Except that you will because you're you. Mm-hmm. I I'm writing a podcast right now for a, a podcast that's going to air in the spring. I wrote it today, and it is exactly about that a- about It'll the power easy. the power of the individual to mm-hmm. change somebody's world world. So you yeah. want to
0: hear how this world changed? That post that I saw. Okay. And then I wrote him this email in my head for months. I finally sent the email. Seven months later, he sends me an email telling me what it meant to him and how he couldn't stop thinking about it. He invite, he asks me if me and my family would like to be part of a documentary that they're doing about the effects that his son's journey has had on the world. He sends Utah, from Utah, a news crew comes to my house in Cleveland, films us, puts us in a documentary and we're part of Mitchell's journey about the points of light like the access points of connection and how his son's journey and his son's passing have affected people in such a way. We've become soul brother friends, soul brother and soul sister. That documentary gets aired. I post it on Facebook as my marriage is falling apart and my son is sick. And wouldn't you know, the next morning I get a message from a guy who lost his daughter to brain cancer, who I only knew about through Facebook friends, and who ended up becoming my husband.
1: As we used to say when I was growing up, that's Hashem, baby. Yeah, that's Hashem. <laughs> and I, I was aware of when
0: I got the message. I had tears rolling on my face. I sent Christopher Jones, Mitchell's father, a message that morning while I was getting my coffee and doing my meditation, I said, your son is changing life. And I wanted him to know that, that his son's light is shining brighter than ever, and I really think that, and I was thinking about this with you, and I'm not going to say anything that is sensitive, but I just want to say this to the universe who needs to hear it. I am not promised that I'm going to die before my children. I am not promised that one of them isn't going to have a horrible accident or that my youngest one is not going to have a medical issue that we can't fix. And although that used to be the thing I was the most afraid of in the entire universe, I believe because God has shown me humans, he's given me what I need, not what I wanted, who who are walking miracles, walking through the most unimaginable dark hallways. My husband, Christopher Jones, there's many around me who are doing it in a way that makes me believe that even if the worst happens, I will be okay. I will be changed. I will be devastated, but I I will not die. And I just needed to say that out loud because I know as a parent, it's my biggest fear in the whole world.
1: Carly, do you feel that you have changed through the process of writing this book? I know I know. for me, and this is sort of a message of the upcoming holiday of Purim. We read the Megillah and we go back to the story of Esther and Mordechai and we tell stories. That's what Jews do. We tell stories. In fact, my grandmother, who's a Holocaust, Survivor. Her maiden name is Magad. Magad is a Hebrew word that means storyteller. And somewhere oh, up there, one you. of my ancestors. Somewhere up there, one of my ancestors was a storyteller who would travel from town to town and you know try to share stories. And and part of the beauty of reading the Megillah on Purim is that we look back and we connect the dots of a story that actually spanned fourteen years. And there's a process that happens to us when we look back and connect dots and tell a story that we don't pick up on when we're actually living through it. So has the telling of your story transformed you in any way? Did it open your eyes in any new way? A hundred percent.
0: Just touching base on well, the writing of it was like a need I had. Like I remember hearing great writers talk about like, your book is going to happen. You just don't know the due date. And like knowing that it needed to come out, like when you're a writer and you have to get your words out, you have to get them right. Um, it is the what is so cool about God is writing was myself was and is my salvation to find and save myself. It is what brought me to a place where I could find love within myself, love within God, and love within you. So writing has always been my salvation. It's also been my gift, not like in a cocky way. Like we all have different gifts, right? You're a great storyteller and writer and speaker and teacher. And um, I'm not great at many things. Like I can't follow any directions. You know what I mean? Like So there's many things I can't do, but writing is one of them I can. And God uses me when I write and when I speak and God speaks to me. Like I have 30 plus journals in my library from when I got sober until this day where it's just me and God talking and I'm writing to God and God's writing to me through my pen I'm sure you can relate to that and so for me that was always there but what the biggest change has been and I tell every single person that takes the time to tell me when they send me a message but what my book has meant to them that they didn't have to take the time to send me the message that they could have just read the book enjoyed it said nothing or said something to someone else and that was it but because they sent me the message and they took the time it changed my day and it made me remember how important it is to do that for other people and how that ripple of kindness is going to now I'm going to be nicer to my kids or nicer to somebody else or I'm going to remember to do that for somebody else and how that they need to understand that they have choices all the time like we all do And that if you want to, you can literally change people's lives by reminding them when they've done something good. And and this goes back to the idea of we all just want to be acknowledged. We all just want to be seen and heard. And, you know, I have to admit something to you because I'm always willing to show you my ugly, which is. So as much beauty as I thought in that and as many beautiful messages I received and so much kindness and support and my mother's like read every single, my mom, my grandmother, like every single copy I've ever written and like the best cheerleader, like everything. I found ugliness inside of myself where I didn't even realize I had an expectation of people who didn't reach out to me and people who didn't take the time to read it and people who didn't, who didn't make the time and it deeply hurt me, and then I got mad that I was human, and I was hurt by them. So not only am I hurt by them, now I'm like, you're not supposed to be hurt by them, and then I was mad that I wasn't over it once I understood that, like, why don't you move on, Carly? And so I wanted to remind me and you that I'm human, and the gift is I need to take the time when somebody else shares their soul with me, to let them know what it means because it really hurts when they don't.
1: Yeah. I think that's the risk of being vulnerable. You Mm -hmm. open yourself up to having your self image impacted by other people's thoughts and opinions, because it doesn't matter how confident we are or how established we are. Other people's thoughts matter to us. And you, you really put yourself out there so vulnerably and so beautifully and you know, your, your journey towards self-love, which I want to hear more about in a moment. And doing that is risky because you never know what people are going to say. And, you know, sometimes you can even get um, unpleasant messages from people who felt like, I don't know, there's, I, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you've gotten those too. So Talk to us for a minute before we conclude about, and this is really, I think, the destination that we've been going towards with our whole conversation today. Um, Who are you, Carly, from that woman in Nice who learned to love herself and to be her own best friend and how your life has progressed through getting married, getting divorced, meeting your second husband, dealing with the intense, intense, life-threatening illness of your child. What would you say to us about your journey towards self-love and understanding that nobody can fully love you if, if you don't love you? And if you don't even know who you are, how can you love you? So what would you say to, to help us out with that? I
0: think that what is so cool about you is we literally get to talk about my two favorite topics on earth, God and loving yourself. <laughs> so like, yay, honestly. Um, <laughs> From age nine, when I wanted to die and hated myself and watched my mom eating her like McDonald's hamburger with like the bun off and her Diet Coke and Jane Fonda and knowing that like women are, are supposed to be skinny and and hating, I remember hearing her say how she, she was fat and ugly and disgusting. My mom's gorgeous. Like, oh geez. yeah, she looks like a Barbie doll, right? She and so totally I'm is. nine and I'm looking at this beautiful woman who says she's fat and ugly and disgusting. And I'm like- I look at my, like my one pack of a belly, you know, like when you're nine and I thought I was fat, ugly, and disgusting too. If she is, and I started a horrible journey of an eating disorder, violent. I, I starved myself. I broke my leg. I went on a physical eating disorder from age nine until 21 when I was in niece is when I stopped doing the physical torture to myself. But then from 21 until two years ago, a year and a half ago, I mentally tortured myself about my body. I think that as women, a lot of it is body stuff because yeah. our worth is in our beauty and in how you look. I remember you taught me this so well. Your daughter, one of your kids has ridiculously beautiful blue eyes like you. I remember hearing someone tell her that she has beautiful eyes and you saying she didn't do anything to get those. Like, like she doesn't need to be complimented on something that she had nothing to do with. Like, she just was born into them. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, we do anything, I remember like hearing that distinction. I specifically started changing things about the way I was living my life. I no longer follow anybody on social media that posts like before and after pictures because I think that they're so degrading and gross. Um, I went out and specifically got a coach to help me mentally change the way I was talking to myself which I think is the biggest thing as women we can do is the language we say to ourselves about ourselves you and I know if one yeah. person you knew said that to you, you would. Ne- I can't say to you because you forget everybody. I would never talk to them again. I'd be like, peace <laughs> out. You're unfriended, right? Yeah. Um, the disgusting, you're fat, or, or just the little passive aggressive things. Like if you say you look beautiful and I'm like, oh, I do. Like that's not kind. So I say thank you. I love this, right? I, pre- I whenever I go into the bathroom, I smile at myself and say hello every single time. Because here's the deal, and I found this out through my divorce, is I've got to have my own back. I've got to be my best friend. I've got to be there for myself in a way. And I remember standing in the shower a year ago and looking out at my 40-year-old body and being like, look, it's a downhill from here. I mean, no matter how much I do, no matter how much I work out and eat or not eat or whatever, this is my body. And I no longer want to talk about being skinny or fat. I want to talk about being healthy and being strong and being fit. And I want to talk about loving myself as is, because I've got these three kids that just because they're boys doesn't mean that they don't care about that stuff. Right. But I've heard one of them saying, "Look at my thigh when I sit down, it moves like this," and I'm like, "That's your, that's your skin, right?" And I don't want to live like that anymore. And it was like the only thing that I had left about me really that was really gross in terms of like, this is not, this is not working with my concept of the kind of human I want to be. And I've made a decision that I refuse to be unkind to myself about myself anymore. Like, and you do this.
1: I I know you, I've heard it in your posts. I I heard you talk about before. Yeah, it's something I've definitely worked on. Um, And for me, the spirituality piece comes in too, because I think it's so important to recognize that our bodies are a gift from God and they're a container for our soul. And that we have to have so much gratitude to our bodies for all the things that they do that they enable us to do throughout the day. And that that to me, that comes from the fact that I have a divine soul that's made in the image of God. And here is my body transforming my soul around this world so I can do things. Wow, thank you, body. I'm so grateful for what you can do and what you look like is so secondary. And that, you know, I mean, now we've got a pandemic
0: and so we've got people literally dying, They're just dying, right? So you got that. Then you've got people that have chronic illnesses or cancer or some horrible stuff. And I'm like complaining about something on my body and our ancestors, me and you, our grandparents, that they were dying of starvation. They literally were dying because they couldn't eat. And I was doing that to myself. And I decided that not only was I gonna be very, very vigilant about my language and my vocabulary, but I was gonna do it with the people around me. Like if my friends or people around me said negative things, I would tell them like, you can't talk about like that about yourself. Cause the, my closest concept I can give you of God today is back to that beautiful woman named Ro Eugene, who said this idea that she remembers seeing this story about two nurses that were standing in a burn unit. Mm-hmm. And there was a young boy and he was screaming cause he was burned all over his body. And every single time he turned any which way, he screamed and was crying. And one nurse said to the other nurse, where's God now? And I get chills because I know she's listening. And the other nurse said, he's crying there with him. And that's my concept of God today. So my God can't make the burns go away, but sits and cries with me. And when me and you as mothers think about one of our kids saying they hate the way they look, or they hate who they are, that makes us, I mean, we can't even breathe. And you take that and then multiply it by like a jillion, and that's what God feels.
1: Yeah, God is with us in our pain. That's a very Jewish idea.
0: Well, look at that. Who even knew?
1: You are actually quoting the Talmud right now, Mrs. Carly. Look out. <laughs> so I could talk to you all day, okay. but. I wanted to ask you to bring this conversation to its close. If you would read us the letter that you wrote to God.
0: I will. And you know what's really cool about it? I don't know if you'll be able to see this. Do you see this? Yeah. This picture was uncovered from the fire department that came to, in my book, uh, my family's fatal fire. And this is taken after, and that's the crib and the fireman and the other bed. And that's my bookmark for this letter. Wow,
1: and and that was a part of your story that I didn't even know. Uh, That's a whole other piece of That's another reminder of we just don't know, right? And I think, you know, just before you read the letter, I think that so many of the things that people rely upon in their lives, instead of like saying, well, I need to love myself, I need to rely on God, so many of those things your parents your grandparents your spouse your kids your home so many of those things were were weak and vulnerable for you and not guaranteed and 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 not strong and then not, not that your parents and grandparents weren't strong and amazing but that because they were addicts you weren't sure what could be expected on a given day and therefore you know there's another quote from the talmud where there's a man who goes through a very difficult A sense of awareness that he's done so many terrible things in his life. And he asks the heaven and earth to be there for him and to ask God for help. And they say no. And he asks the, he asks the mountains and the valleys and they say no. And he asks the sun and the moon and they say no. And he finally says, I'll just quote it in Hebrew, the matter is dependent only on me. And I feel like that's where you've arrived at and it's it's just so beautiful it can i love life. that you know what this is making me realize
0: because god wanted me to hear it is i need to study with you like i need i need more of you so we're gonna it's talk about how we can get that good okay dear god and this is at the end of my book thank you for wanting more for me than i could possibly fathom 19 years ago when i signed myself out of the icu against medical advice and walked the one and a half miles home in the winter morning You gave me the greatest gift, the gift of desperation. You were with me on the bathroom floor. You told me to ask for help. You were with me on that walk home when I couldn't think of one more plan. You have been with me every moment for the last 19 years, even when I couldn't feel you or hear you. Thank you for what you have done with that broken, dying, absent girl. Thank you for my parents who led the way. Thank you for the teacher's examples, opportunities, and gifts. Thank you for saying no, and yes, and wait. Thank you for the reminders and signs that you place everywhere for me to see you. Thank you for the opportunity to be a sober mother to three little men who would not have a sober mother if I had been given what I thought I wanted. Thank you for my ex who co-parents those boys with me. Thank you for the true diehard friends and for the women to work with in recovery. Thank you for my soulmate who sees me for who I am and loves me as I am. Thank you for walking with me in the darkest hours. Everything since that night I attempted suicide has been bonus time. I forget that often. Thank you for the heart you helped heal and the voice you helped me use. I want to do so much more to show you my gratitude. Please use me. I wanna read one more letter It's to myself if it's okay with you, because it's connected. Dear Carly, there is a picture of you on the couch in first grade reading to a doll. When I look at it, I remember how alone you felt even back then. I see another picture of you getting ready for a dance with your hatred in your eyes. You hated how you looked and punished yourself for never being skinny enough. You tortured yourself for so long. You almost didn't make it. I thank God every day you didn't get what you wanted on that bathroom floor in Athens, Ohio. Through it all, through sobriety in college, family and friends, kids and divorce, love and fear, you've learned life's greatest lesson. William Shakespeare's words, which you have tattooed on your wrists to thine own self be true. You can finally say that you have come as close to this ideal as you can. Thank you for finally listening to the soul voice within. Thank you for being willing to let go of all that was no longer serving you, no matter how good it made you look on the outside. Thank you for being the amazing mother that you are to those three boys. Because of all the work you do and the time you put in, you are going to raise three conscious, mindful, awake human beings who will carry with them all you have taught them. Thank you for being willing to forgive and to surrender. You are one of my favorite humans on earth. It is not BS that you must get to the place where you can love yourself on your own in order to have a healthy relationship. It's true. And you get to have the most beautiful relationship now because you did the work to love yourself. Please never stop growing, stretching, speaking out, falling down, fucking up and living because you only get one life. You get just one turn here. And this round is a bonus round from God.
1: Wow. I, 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 I'm, I was going to say you have a way with words, but that's not really even what it is. It's that you have a way with your heart mm-hmm. and what's in your heart comes shining out and it's just such a gift. So we have some questions here. The first one is really easy because the other ones are not. And that is where can people buy your book? Uh,
0: thank you. So Amazon is the easiest place. Uh, it's, paperback, digital, or the audio is me narrating. And it's the forward is by one of my favorite authors, Jennifer Passeloff, and she's narrating. It's also available um, locally at a shop uh, in Coventry. If you're in Cleveland, there's a
1: Max Back's paperback. It's on Barnes and
0: Noble or Audible or Apple or any of those places.
1: Okay. So here's one of the tougher questions. How do you distinguish between God and your inner voice? Is it one and the same?
0: This is my favorite. So Neely, who was one of your speakers, is, I I need to get in touch with her because I literally talk about this all the time. Okay. This
1: is a woman, by the way, whose name is Neely Cousins, C-O-U-Z-E-N-S. Look her up on social media. And she's also a Jewish educator that has been very inspirational to me. And and she's
0: one of those women like you, her you, um, another woman that was there, I think her name was Rochelle, Rachel, um, the same time, that same weekend, and, um, Oh, yeah, Rachel Goldbaum. So, when you guys speak, I'm like, oh, okay, I hear everything you're saying, (laughs) and when she, this is my favorite thing, so she says, there's a group of women, we're all in a conference room, and she says, okay, by show of hands, raise your hand if you hear voices in your head, and half the room raises their hand, including me, because I always hear voices, like, telling me what to do, and then she says, for those who who did not raise their hand and you just hear a voice in your head that says I don't hear voices and everyone laughs, laughs. and she has this concept about basically the way I tell it in my own non-Jewishy language because she talks about it in more Jewish I say it's kind of like the God soul voice and the head voice or like or Jennifer Patsloff calls it her IA her inner asshole and so the way that she describes it as the best way is like that. so let's say you said, I'm gonna work out tomorrow. I wanna wake up early and work out. It's gonna feel good. I'm gonna feel I'm gonna feel good and take care of myself and feel healthy and strong. Alarm goes off at 6 a.m. in Cleveland. It's freezing and dark at 6 a.m. And the first voice I hear in my head is, I'm tired, I wanna go to bed. I'm gonna hit snooze. Then I hear a voice that says, You said you were gonna get up, you'll feel better. Then I hear a voice that says, No, I'm just gonna sleep for like another 10 minutes and I'll do it and I'll get up later. Then you hear a voice that says back and forth you know, you're not going to do it later. And that is the soul God voice versus the mind inner asshole voice. And she explained to me that the inner asshole mind voice always wants what's best for you right now. I want to eat that. I want to call them. I want to look this up. I want to go to bed. I want to watch this. They want now, right now. I want to feel good right now. The soul God voice wants what's best for you in the future and often uses the word you. So I is usually, I want this, I don't want that, I want to do this, and God's voice, the soul voice, is you said, you promised, and it's the same voice that was on that bathroom floor. Mm-hmm. You said you were going to do that. You know, and, and for me, my God voice, I want to know what yours is, does not yell at me. It's very much like, you know that you don't want to do that, and then I do it, and then I'm like, damn, why did I do that? I don't always listen. What about you?
1: Well, God's voice in the Torah literature is described as a still small voice. In Hebrew, it's Kol daka. and God doesn't yell at us. God speaks to us in a soft voice, and it's up to us. It's a choice if we're going to pay attention. It's a partnership, right? That's exactly. And the God
0: says, "Like, look, I'm I'm reminding you because you said you wanted this. Let's go do this." And I, my inner voice, my me voice, is like. I'm tired. I just want to be with my blankie. Right. And then I know this Carly right here at four o'clock after I've done everything is going to be too tired to get on the spin bike. So I'm just going to get on
1: at six and just get it over with, which is what my Papa Harry said, life, get it over with, just keep going. Yeah. So that's how I did. That's how I decipher it. I think that's a great distinction. Um, the next question is, is it imperative that we have a relationship with God in order to achieve the various levels of self-acceptance that you're talking about? Um, I don't think so. I think everyone's got their own way
0: to get there. But for me, I have no other way to get there than with God. And I think what scares people is the concept of God. And, you know, in, in recovery where I am, I'm working with people all the time that are totally broken. And the word God is very, very hard for them to even hear. And so the way we do it is we start and just say, what do you need God to be? you know, let's have it not be you because we know that you're not the only one here and you need something bigger than you because you're just, you can't do this on your own. And so can you find self-love on your own? I think you can-ish, but I, for me, I need something bigger than what's inside of my head to get there. What about you?
1: You know, I feel conflicted in answering this question because I'm very into not pushing my God agenda on anybody, even though I am a religious teacher and I'm a spiritual teacher and that is literally my job. But, but, and you'll appreciate this as, as a person in recovery. I also feel like it's my responsibility to have a still small voice. And I can't yell my God agenda at other people. Everybody's been through different stuff. Everybody's been raised with a different version of God or the absence of Um, so like in my private head, which I'm now going to break my own rule and share publicly in my private head, the answer is yes. I do think it's imperative to achieve this level of self-acceptance for the very reason that you said, Carly, I, and this is also something that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs writes a lot about in his book called morality, which I'm currently obsessed with is that we need each other to lift us out of our garbage. And so self-acceptance can't only come from me. you know. And the way I paraphrase that in, in a recent article in the Jewish News is even a l- drowning lifeguard cannot save himself. I love that concept. So I, I need, as you said, something, someone bigger than me to save me from myself. Because I think those voices of doubt, of self-denigration, of self-loathing are so loud and different for different people. I do happen to think just to be risky and generalize that women are more at risk for those voices, although I do believe that everybody is at risk for them. They're so loud that you need something even more powerful to counteract the voices in your head. So I do think the answer is yes, but I will also say that it's not for me to legislate that. Every person is gonna have to find their own path in that journey. Um, and, And that's really, we're going to do one more question and then I'm going to end re- with a trigger question for all of you to think about on this note. Wait, before so, you go
0: there, I, wanna, I just want to respond to one thing you just said that was so important. Yeah. I, am, I am not uncomfortable telling you about what's on the inside of my head, as you know. I'm like the opposite, you know, opposite of that. <laughs> I actually think that, I can tell you from this, so I'm sober 22 years in the program that I'm sober in, The way that it was created was the only way you get to stay here and stay sober and get strong and healthy and alive is by helping others. And so I always joke about how God, who I believe helped create this program, knows how selfish and self-centered this alcoholic is and knows that the only way I will actually reach out of my internal self and connect with another person is if my life depends on it, because it does. And the way that I explained what God was to my three little boys when they were babies and little toddlers was I said that God is like a bright light. And God took that bright light and put a little piece inside of each of our hearts. And that when we love each other, it gets brighter. And that the, the happiest I am in my life is when I'm doing something to help someone else and connect with somebody else. I'm never just ridiculously happy by myself. Yes, I enjoy Netflix and some vegan ice cream. But at the end of the day, I'm happiest dropping off something for a foster family, reaching out to somebody else, helping a new woman. I'm happiest in that connection. And so I don't know that if you just read a bunch of books by yourself that you can get
1: there. Yeah, I, I, I hear you loud and clear and I, and I totally agree. Um, okay, so I think we actually did touch on, on all the questions. So before I uh, end with my trigger question, was there anything that you wanted to say in closing, Carly? Thank you. Okay. So uh, before I before I present my trigger question, I just want to thank the Maltz Museum for hosting this. And I want to thank Dahlia Fisher for thinking of us um, and, and allowing us to have this platform to talk to one another. I also want to thank all of you who have written such beautiful comments in the chat right now. It really means a lot to, to me and I know to Carly as well. Um, just to know that uh, our conversation has touched people and I know when I read Carly's book, I was like, everybody needs to read this book. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's, it's an honor to be here. Here's my question for you all to think about today. One is, what is the biggest challenge that you have experienced in your life to date? Two, what is your current relationship with a higher power? And three, What is the relationship between the two? Mm. I'm going to put that in the chat so that you guys have the opportunity to. So good. And to think that over.
0: This is recorded so we can share it with people and spread all that goodness around there. Everyone that was on here has a responsibility to carry these kind of conversations out into the world because if we're not talking about this kind of stuff, what are we
1: talking about? I could not agree more.
0: I love you. I love you, Carly. Thank you guys so much. If you would like to check out Ruchi, she has an amazing book called Conversations with God, and her website is called outoftheorthobox.com, rather than docs, be like boy. And if you would like to check out my memoir, Seconds and Inches, it's available on Amazon with me narrating it as an audio or in digital or paperback. And we would love to hear what your thoughts are. So please reach out to me. You can check out my website, carlyisrael.com. And if you do love this podcast, please rate and review because it makes such a difference and other people are able to find it better. Thank you and have an awesome day.